Now is the winter of our discontent, made glorious summer by the sun of York, and all the clouds that lured above our house in the deep bosom of the ocean now buried. Now are our brows hung with victorious wreaths, our stern alarms changed to merry measures. Grim-visioned war has smoothed his wrinkled brow. <laughs> That's fantastic. Better than one, two, three. Brian Smith here, and welcome to the Dream Path Podcast, where I try to get inside the heads of talented creatives from all over the world. My goal is to demystify and humanize the creative process and make it accessible to everyone. Now let's jump in. Chris Kincaid's on the show today. Chris is what many would call a renaissance man, a man with multiple creative disciplines. He is the former lead singer of the Seattle-based rock band Rail. He's also a Los Angeles-based actor who trained at the American Academy of Dramatic Arts in New York. This is where he met his best friend, Nick Cassavetes, who went on to direct the films Alpha Dog and The Notebook. After acting school, Chris became a stage actor and then a television and film actor, with roles in the film Alpha Dog with Emile Hirsch and Justin Timberlake, as well as My Sister's Keeper with Cameron Diaz and Alec Baldwin, among many others. His latest film is Fade Out Ray, directed by Francisco Martinez. And although Chris left the band Rail in the 70s, he never left music. He's currently in the band Elsewaves, which I'll provide more information on in the show notes. He's also an accomplished harpist, which is an instrument I didn't know much about until meeting Chris at his home in Los Angeles, where he had three on display in his living room. In addition to music and acting, Chris is also a practitioner of the healing arts and has been a massage therapist for the last 30 years. Many of his clients are Hollywood movie stars, including Woody Harrelson and, of course, his friend Nick Cassavetes but Chris also dedicates time to teaching massage. Chris has been pursuing the arts in some form or another his entire life, and the story of how he's been able to stay on that path is compelling. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy this wide-ranging discussion with actor, musician, and massage therapist of the stars, Chris Kincaid. So if I hold it about that far apart, kind of like Elvis doing (laughs) Suspicious Minds, I'm at the International Hotel, honey bun, I'm about to go on stage. (laughs) So, uh, Chris Kincaid, thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you for coming to Toluca Lake and visiting me in my humble place. This is a very peaceful, lovely smelling, and um, the vibe in here is one of sort of zen, I would say. Finely tuned over many, many years of creating it just for that to, you know, make my clients, guests, and everyone comfortable, my harps happy, and, you know, just an easy way to live. Lots of salt lamps. Lots of uh, nice candles and Palo Santo wood, uh, glowing little embers of Palo Santo sort of cleanse the atmosphere. So why don't you tell the listeners where we are and what this space is used for? We are right down the street from Warner Brothers Studios in Burbank, right in the belly of the beast. Um, And we are in a uh, structure that was built about 80 years ago, back in the days before they had the freeway system here in Los Angeles. People would stay here and walk across the street to... Uh, work on the Humphrey Bogart movies, the Errol Flynn movies, the Betty Davis movies. So this was part of the little enclave of uh, uh, directors, makeup people, um, not actors so much, but uh, they would all stay in these places, walk across the street, go to work. And uh, I have been here now for over 30 years. It was not a plan. I kind of came in on a month-to-month lease, but it turned out to be just the right place to be. I learned how to play the harp here. I uh, um, built up my massage practice here and uh, uh, had a couple dogs pass through my life here and uh, 
uh, cat. I'm down to my last cat. So uh, this uh, place has seen him come and seen him go. And so you you have these instruments, these huge, I'm trying to describe for the listeners, there's three harps in this room, and you obviously play the harp. Yes, I do. I, I, I love the harp. I was inspired to play the harp when I was about five years old. Uh, we were, I was watching a Marx Brothers movie called Horse Feathers, and there's a segment in there where Harpo comes in and plays this solo that just blew my mind. And I looked at it, I remember my jaw dropped, and it's like, oh, I got to be able to do that someday. And it was my dream to play the harp. And in those days, the movie would come on, you know, maybe once a year you'd see it. Now with YouTube, I can watch it every day. I want to and be inspired. And when you see him play that solo, Thelma Todd is up in the, the balcony. He's Jimi Hendrix on that harp. He's tearing it up. And he was totally self-taught. And I wanted to play the harp so bad. And, and the days when I was growing up, they had music education as part of the schools. And they said, well, what instrument do you want to play? I said, I want to play the harp. They handed me a pair of drumsticks and said, <laughs> yeah, go learn to, go learn to paradiddle. And uh, I, it wasn't, my heart wasn't really into it. And it wasn't until I moved out here and started my um, massage career that it was pointed out to me that Sylvia Woods Harp Center was in Glendale, Glendale, and Sylvia Woods was one of the uh, preeminent harpists in the Celtic harp world, and she created a community out of Glendale where the greatest harpists in the world would come and play at her store, and you could go and play all of her harps there. And I went to all the concerts and uh, got my first harp, started taking some lessons, taught myself how to play, got my second harp years later, and uh, got my electric harp about four or five years ago. So it's been a lifelong passion of mine. If you look up on the wall there, there's a picture of Harpo playing that solo to Thelma Todd in Horse Feathers. And on top of that picture, there's some harp strings. And there's a story about that. Uh, one of my clients is the um, writer, um, Glenn, Go Glenn Gold. And he came to see me one time. And he, afterwards, he had his hands behind his back. He said, I have something to give to you. And he goes, I've been waiting a long time to give this to someone for just the right person. And I'm like, okay, what is it? He goes, he pulls out these harp strings. He goes, this is from Harpo Marx's harp. Oh and he told gosh. me a story about how he came to, to, to get them. He had a friend who had bought one of Harpo's harps and she gave him one of the strings and I almost went to my knees. It's maybe the greatest thing anyone has ever given to me because as a harp player, you can see where he's worn the strings down with his playing and it's probably got his DNA on there. And I like to fantasize that that's a harp, harp string from that harp in that movie, which inspired me. Oh, that's great. It's so neat to hear from people who are that passionate about an instrument that oftentimes gets overlooked as the possibility for young people. Well, especially by, 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 you know, big, ugly guys like me, it's usually pretty gals, you know, with angel wings playing them. And <laughs> to see a guy like me playing the harp is not, not typical, you know, right. um, but it, it was a passion of mine and I, I kind of created my own language with it and, and have uh, uh, found good use for it. I, I played at a yoga center here in Studio City, actually over in Studio City, we're in Burbank, Toluca Lake right now, for years called Angel City Yoga. I kind of learned how to play with an audience on live harp, uh, live harp music for yoga classes for many, many years. And I'd play at the hospitals at St. Joe's Hospital down the street. I uh, I'd read a study that Wake Forest University had done, which talked about um, 
the vibrations from harp music actually had a healing effect on preemie babies in the neonatal intensive care ward because it lowered their cortisol levels and also lowered, lowered the cortisol levels of the doctors and nurses on the ward because it's a high stress ward. So I had some people I knew at St. Joe's and I started playing harp at St. Joe's at the neonatal intensive care ward for the preemie babies. And one of my favorite gigs, you go in there and they'd be crying and babies. And as soon as you did a glissando on the harp, the whole place hushed and they would just listen to you play. And I remember one time a father came up with one of his preemie babies and holding his arms and he had tears in his eyes. He goes, I just wanted to tell you that my son said that's the best concert he's ever heard and it touched me deeply. Oh. So yeah, those type of things you can do with the harp and actually, you know, help people. I played in hospice situations before for people who are going through, uh, you know, transitioning out of this life and, so it's opened a lot of doors. It's it's a it's it's a passion of mine that I I'm quite um, quite fond has found me. Mm -hmm. um, I also uh, use it in a uh, musical project I have called Else Waves with uh, one of the the greatest musicians I've ever seen or heard of and happen to know very well, a guitar player from Seattle called Rick Knotts, and uh, we've known each other since high school. And he'd come down every year for the NAM convention because he had invented a uh, device for guitars to help sustain notes. And every year we'd get together and we used to be in a band together called Rail and Company up in Bellevue, Washington. And we used to tour around and, and, and we always stayed in touch. And every year we'd get together and do this. And one day I, I looked at him and said, do you mind if I like play my harp while you play? And I mean, it's like here, here I'm like drawing stick figures and here's Picasso, you know, but uh, he was game and he let me do it. <laughs> and we played this 11 minute piece and recorded it. And it was so beautiful. We we're just improvising. We looked at each other and go, Oh my God, like we've got to do something with this. We've like created a new musical language. So we started recording and uh, he invested a lot of money in recording equipment. We'd go to uh, different beautiful places. The first time was up at Lake Arrowhead. We'd rent a big house, three-story house, and we'd set up all our equipment and we would record for three or four days and just record like 20 songs. We don't live in the same town, so we were just creating them on the spot and improvising. In fact, our very first song we recorded for our album is a song called Reckless Splendor. We just got done setting up all the equipment. And Rick goes, let's record something. I go, oh, let's maybe tomorrow. I mean, we just spent hours setting up. And then he goes, no, I want to record something. Let me show you something. He whips out a mandolin and he plays this three-part suite that's flawless and beautiful. And I go, play it again. And he plays and I start mumbling some words. And I go, play it again and press record. And I just started improvising words and melodies to this uh, uh, this suite that he was playing and it was perfect and we released it that way and that's kind of how we record. Rick will start playing something and I'll just start channeling words and, and we just have this great chemistry and connection and uh, he's allowed me to uh, make music with him and I play the harp with him. I mainly sing and write the words but I, we do stuff with the harp and the electric harp uh, um, as well and so it's a uh, it's really fun to collaborate as a musician even though i probably uh don't even belong in the same room with someone like rick knotts when did you form your musical consciousness and and really understand what type of music you liked and what type of music you didn't like well i had the wonderful benefit of having very enlightened parents who exposed us very early to a broad range of music i remember 
as a baby, uh, they used to play Rimsky Korsakov Scheherazade for me in, well, in my crib. And I think I could conduct it at this point. It's so ingrained in my memory. And they would take us to wonderful places. Uh, at the time, we lived in San Francisco, and we'd go see, just uh, saw the mamas and the papas, you know, play at Golden Gate Park when I was a little kid. Um, I saw Ella Fitzgerald with the Nelson Riddle Orchestra uh, when I was seven years old. I saw um, Puccini's uh, um, Johnny Skiki at the San Francisco Opera House. I mean, we got exposed to a lot, and I think that it uh, just sort of, permeated my consciousness very early, maybe even before I got here on this planet, because I understand the musical language in an intrinsic way, even though I can't articulate it, and like a lot of people like writing, reading music. And that used to really stump me until one day I had a private lesson with uh, Deborah Hanson Conant, who's one of the great harpists in the world. And I told her I felt you know, really out of everyone's league in that class. And I said, you know, I'd I, I can read music, but I'm not like you guys. She goes, listen, the greatest musicians in the world probably are uh, are sitting in a tree somewhere, have no idea what key they're in, and just play, you know, and uh, they, they would like to learn what you do. And that gave me a lot of freedom. And then I went on to learn people like Chet Baker. He... He couldn't read music. Greatest trumpet player ever. Stevie Ray Vaughan never even knew what key he was in, <laughs> you know, and that made me feel like, okay, I'm in a pretty good company here. And it, I felt less inhibited with that. Yeah. And so when you play harp, you're playing by ear? Mainly, although um, I went through an extensive period where I was uh, taking some lessons. One of my problems is I'm probably so right brained that I'm almost handicapped. You know, I don't have a lot of the. Uh, left brain capabilities that most people have and and for a long time uh, like as a kid growing up in school they didn't have they had they have labels for this stuff now but they didn't have labels and I just thought I was from Mars but once I uh, understood that the labels mean nothing and I just process information uniquely it gave me a freedom to be able to go into playing music that I heard and felt instead of studied off the page but I did study with some good teachers and I was probably a big struggle for them because I would look at the notes, they're all over the page and, and I learned some things, some good basics and it helped me with the intuitive way that I play. So tell us about your time with rail because I know they were pretty big in the Northwest and, yeah. and toured and they are part of the 80s scene basically. Quite an interesting, um, yeah, quite an interesting legacy that they have. I had known them from junior high school, uh, Andy um, Baldwin, Kelly Nobles, and Terry Young. And I remember we used to uh, play in a shed out in the back of Andy's parents' uh, uh, like stables, and we'd practice there. And I moved to Williamsville, New York in my junior year of high school and was in some bands out there. And then uh, upon graduation, I was on the phone call with Terry and he said, we're looking for a singer. Our singer quit or we kicked him out or whatever. And he goes, are you still pretty hard rock? And I remember I sang some Led Zeppelin for him over the phone. He goes, you sound hard rock. And then just on that, I wound up flying, you know, from uh, Buffalo, New York to uh, Bellevue. And I joined up with Rail and Company. Uh, I was 18 years old. I just left home. I had like 400 bucks in my pocket. And at that time, it was uh, uh, Kelly, Andy, Terry, 
a keyboard player named Randy Miller and Rick. So we're talking uh, about 70s here, not 80s. Then. We're talking the 70s. We're talking yeah. 1975. I mean, and and the the roots of Rail and Company, uh, Rail, which was originally Rail and Company, go back to the early 70s, you know, junior high school. You know, these guys have known each other a long time. And I played and toured with them for about a year and a half. And uh, I was with them the first time we saw that Paramount Northwest Theater. And we were a pretty big deal out there, talking about 75 and 76. But we were making a lot of money and I wasn't seeing any, but none of us were. We had a management company that was um, taking care of us. And I'm like <laughs> going, Are you we were literally living off of $40 a week. And then we got a raise of $60 a week. And I'm out there living in an apartment with Rick uh, uh, and supporting myself on that. And I'm going, something just doesn't seem right. And I, I really struggle to uh, make sense of that. And I wound up leaving the band because I said, this is ridiculous. We're getting ripped off. We, you know, I can't support myself. And they all come from rather well-to-do families and they had a lot of support. I was out there by myself. And then years later, um, they wound up getting in a lawsuit with the people that were handling it. I go, yeah, you were right. <laughs> you know, and it's a shame because if that had all worked out, we'd probably be sitting poolside right now. But they went on to have some, uh, a good deal of well-earned success, hardworking guys, good musicians. They still play together, um, occasionally to this day and uh, more power to them. They're a really nice bunch of guys, especially Rick, who's probably my musical soulmate and one of the best friends in my life. So, no hard feelings whatsoever. No, what's the point of that? Yeah. I, I, I celebrate that I got to be a part of that. And uh, there are still some recordings that we did. There's some video of stuff we've done, you know, um, way, way back. It would have been nice to have had the opportunity to grow with them musically because we were, we were a good unit. But uh, they went on and did fine on their own. And I went my way and I've had a bunch of nice adventures since. I, in doing the research for this interview, I, I went back and looked at you hosting some shows and I think it was the eighties. It might've been the seventies, but there's some footage of you. Is there footage of you on YouTube where you're talking about music? And, oh God. Yeah, yeah. There's a bunch of them. I was the anchor of the honor staff for, a. Uh, internationally syndicated music video network called hit video usa ah, it was that's uh, it. Yeah. yeah it was there was mtv and hit video usa was trying to carve out its block and i was hired to anchor the on-air staff and i was on tv three hours a day uh seven days a week for like three years and so the, a lot of those clips still exist and it's kind of fun to look back and you realize wow time has gone by pretty quick but that was that was a whirlwind i had a great opportunity to um interview a lot of people in the music business at the time and, uh, you know, have a real easy gig. I'm uh, literally on TV three hours a day, but not even that. We, our whole thing was we were on TV live. I mean, you could call us up and request stuff. And But basically, I would uh, do the first hour and a half live and take my last hour and a half and go to the gym and play basketball. So, it was <laughs> an easy life, real easy. So, where was that out of? Houston, Texas. Oh, okay. Gosh, you've been all over the country. Yeah, yeah, I've I've taken a, a a circuitous route to wind up here where I've been for 30 years without moving. So, one of the clips that I saw was I think it was you interviewing Nick Cassavetes. Yep. And it's so the hardest interview I've ever done in my life. Try interviewing your best friend on TV. What you saw was probably take 52. Yeah. And so how did that happen? How did that come together? Well, um 
the interview yeah the interview and yeah, uh, just was, because the listeners don't know about your connection to nick so yeah like, well if they watch the interview they'll find out um the uh nick was in town uh he had got two films that he was promoting at the time the wraith and a film called quiet cool and i was at the the network and i said well you come up and do an interview so he came on up and it was about 11 12 o'clock at night we were going to tape the interview to play uh the next day and so Nick and I are talking and it would eventually we'd have to cut. We can't say that. No, no, we can't tell that story. No, 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 no. This is family friendly. And this went on dozens of times to the point where we were like delirious. So when you finally see the tape of I'm sitting like this talking to try to get through the the, the break without us having to stop. And it was hilarious, you know, because uh, the stories that we can't tell on the air, uh, we were trying to tell. We were a little silly late at night and a lot of F words were coming out and stuff. No, 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 cut, Nick, we can't do that. So, um, but yeah, that interview does exist on there. And it was one of the hardest interviews I ever had to do. So what is your connection to, tell us about your connection to the Casavetas family. Well, I certainly have been blessed to uh, be a part of that wonderful, incredible, creative community that is surrounded by the Cassavetes family. And uh, it was a, a great stroke of luck. And I, I was at the American Academy of Dramatic Arts. This is 1977. And I uh, decided to go there after I left rail and uh, take... Um, uh, the study course there to, uh, you know, learn about acting and stuff seemed like a good idea at the time. Isn't that what John did as well? John was an alumni of the academy and so yeah. was Jenna. Okay. And so I'm walking down the hall one day and I, I hear this guy coming down the stairs above me from the second flight and he's singing, save me, my heart's open wide, a Judas Priest song. And I happen to know the other lyrics and go, help me, no question of pride. And he looks at me, and goes, JP. I go, yeah. He goes, let's go out and get stoned. So uh, we <laughs> went out in my car and uh, we began a lifelong friendship, uh, uh, that has remained to this day. He wound up taking me home to his, uh, family. I was living in someone's attic in somebody's house some writer who lived in a pink house and i lived in his attic and he took me home to meet john and jenna and they immediately embraced me like you're one of us now and that's how they were just incredibly generous uh and i and i was and i got to be a part of that i got to uh see this great family of artists uh up close and personal they welcomed me and uh, to this day, uh, I mean, uh, uh, Nick's uh, daughter is my goddaughter, and uh, um, we're super close. I was with him today. We were hiking up uh, Runyon Canyon today, and I just feel really blessed because there's very few people as colorful as Nick Cassavetes, and also to have known his father, whose uh, 90th birthday was yesterday, which touched us very much to think of John, you know, who's been gone so long, um, to have been 90. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's an, it's an ongoing beautiful thing. And, uh, I, I'm incredibly fortunate to, uh, have, they're my family out here. You know, that's who I spend, you know, Christmas, Thanksgiving with and all the time we get together. And, and, uh, you know, and fortunately, uh, um, you know, Nick has been generous and, uh, stuck me in some of his movies and other people see me in Nick's movies, go, want you to be in my movie. And so with very little effort, I wind up doing, you know, a couple movies a year and, and I've had a lot of fun, no pressure with it. I just wind up, you know, having opportunities. As you know, you know, it's a cliche, but it's who you know that really helps. And, uh, you know, I happen to know some, some people that are very generous. Yeah, I, I looked at your reel on IMDb, and, and it's pretty impressive. The, Thank the you. number of films that you've been in and the... I mean, the uh, My Sister's Keeper and Alpha Dog yeah. and, and really A-list director. Well, obviously, Nick is an A-list director. 
um, but you're you're in quality movies. I have been very fortunate. Yes, I um, you know the uh, Alpha Dog, uh, which I thought was a great movie. Um, Sisters Keeper, big studio movie. Uh, I've also been in a couple westerns and uh, um, some low budget cult movies as well. I've got a movie that uh, is coming out next year that I'm incredibly proud of called Fade Out Ray, which was uh, made by a, a team uh, consisting of Turk Matthews and Francisco Martinez, who, you know, I've, I've seen a lot in my years and I've seen a lot of people make movies and create and everything like this, but these guys created something really special. And uh, Francisco Martinez, who wrote it, directed it, edited it, did the music for it, co-stars in it. He's a savant. I don't know where he learned how to make movies, but he's just remarkable. I was actually on the phone with friends of mine uh, uh, who are involved with uh, uh, film festivals across the country and, you know, talking to them about this. And you're really excited because it's in its final phases of post-production right now. It's taken five years to make it, which Nick's dad would have loved because John was tinkering. He would tinker on his films forever. And, uh, and he would approve of that. And I think uh, Frankie Martinez has been very influenced by uh, John Cassavetes. And so he's kind of kind of following that mode. I'm, it's not done till it's done. And they took forever. They put it on their backs, financed it. And, and you know, it's. I don't mean to make cliches out of superlatives when I'm talking about it. But it's really special. And I, I just can't wait for everyone to see it. It's uh, And it's certainly one of my favorite roles I've ever had the fortune to have. So Nice. Can you give us a brief synopsis? Yeah, it's a it's a dark fable, um, dark comedy fable about a low level uh, drug dealer in Los Angeles who might not be too smart, but he formulates a plan to get rich by uh, writing a cartoon. So he writes this cartoon called "The Dog's Meow," and he really believes that he will have some success with it. And through a bit of dream crushing subterfuge. Uh, let's just say that possibly his, uh, the outcome is not optimum for him. And, um, there's some payback involved. And it's hard to describe the, the actual look and feel of it, but the best way I can describe it is it's like a Cone Brothers film that's very character driven with lots of great characters coming in and out, beautifully written. It's got a little David Lynch because it's got a little that dark LA noirish feel, contemporary noirish. And it's definitely got some, some of that Tarantino sort of, uh, I did not see this coming, uh, plot twists. Yeah. So it's in post production. And what, what do you expect the rollout to be, uh, in terms of our ability to see it and, and stream it? Well, here's what my hope is. Um, uh, post production color correction is actually going to be done in about two weeks. I have a number of people that I know that have access to, uh, uh, you know, getting it to streaming things like Netflix, Hulu, whatever like that, who are looking for content. And the fact that it doesn't have any really big name stars really doesn't matter. I mean, Napoleon Dynamite didn't either. So you just have to have a good product. And fortunately, I'm because of my role as a massage therapist here in Hollywood, I have access to people that a lot of people generally wouldn't have. I mean, like, so I'm going to be calling on some of those people to uh, see if they can help out. Beyond that, you know, there's film festivals that uh, it can be shown in. My my concern with film festival circuit is a lot of, there's like a whole cottage industry now of film festivals. Back when I was younger, there's like four or five of them. Now there's like 500. And I think a lot of times it's just where 
films go and get screened. People get take pictures on the red carpet and, and never heard from again, which is great. At least they get to be seen, but I don't really want to see that just kind of get lost in that and never heard from again. I would love to see it uh, picked up from uh, streaming services. I don't think it's going to be something you're going to see at the AMC because again, not big budget, but this is a golden age for entrepreneurial filmmakers because there are so many avenues to pursue. And uh, I really feel this film has a destiny and uh, if it wasn't that good i wouldn't be talking about it uh so i'm i'm definitely calling in all my chips with all the people that i know to kind of help open doors for it yeah so hopefully 2020 it's going to wind up somewhere it's kind of undeniable that and when you see it you'll know why and when you realize that there's there's a and frank francisco martinez is a soft-spoken humble quiet guy and i've known him for years i mean Six years ago, he's living out of his car and he created this thing. And it's like, are you kidding me? <laughs> I can't believe how the, what this mind that this guy has. So it's really, I'm really rooting for them. I'm rooting for these guys. So I want to back up a little bit because you are doing some really unique things creatively. You're, first of all, you're in the healing arts of massage therapy. Yeah. And and I, I look at that as a creative endeavor. Without a doubt. Um, and, and we'll talk a little bit more about that later. But um, you're also a musician. You play the harp. You, you know, I've seen YouTube videos, just recent ones, of you uh, singing in a, in, in a musical, in a band of, of some kind. Um, That's probably some of the Else Waves videos. We oh, yeah, the Else Waves. Right. Rick, yeah. yeah. Oh, we got some new ones coming out too in January. We have a three song EP that's being released that we've been, we're very excited about. I've already created the videos and I and, uh, can't wait for people to see and them. Can you spell Else Waves for our, our yes, listeners? E L S E W A V E S. Okay. And you also obviously are acting. You're, you're in Hollywood and you are acting in big Hollywood movies, you're acting in indie films. And I want to go back to the the point in your life where you went in the direction of being a creative and what drove you to go in that direction, if there was a moment like that. Well, I think that it's um, sort of a, um, you know, a child is like in a chrysalis form, you know, and you're absorbing things. And I, I lived at a, a time of, of really creative things things happening i'm talking the you know i can't I, I i opened my eyes up and it was like the mid 60s you know i'm a little kid and i'm hearing the doors and the beatles and and uh, i'm watching some you know godfather and these great movies there was like this creative fire going on and it affected me greatly my parents gave me a lot of access to be to that type of thing we watched the movies listened to the music and to me it just seemed like you know, it really, I, I was, I was also, let me back up a little bit. And that, that when I went to first grade, I'm a little kid in first grade. I was, I was living in, uh, Miami, I think at the time. And, uh, a little kid going to first grade and getting to check out the scene. Everyone's happy and it's a flourishing time. It's, a, um, you know, you got this handsome president and this beautiful wife there. And then two months into it, the teachers cry and they send us home. And this handsome president had his head blown off. And everything changed. I mean, I felt the shift in me as a child. I felt, I was looking at my parents crying. I felt very vulnerable. And I immediately found that I was uh, facing a, a whole nother uh, dynamic conscious shift, everyone collectively, and like an end of innocence. 
right at that time, they started uh, amping up the Vietnam War. So I'm in first grade. And suddenly it's like we're looking at on TV because they used to, they got, they got smart now. They don't show it in the old days. They used to show what was happening in the wars. So every day I'm absorbing this stuff, first grade, second grade, third grade. And I'm kind of scared because I'm not someone that would do well in that type of a situation. So until 12th grade, you know, the whole time I'm like, when you turn 18, you have to go sign up for the draft. You're probably going to go to Vietnam. You're probably going to die. You know, the average age of the guys, the 53,000, whatever kids that were killed, they were 19 years old. And I had friends that, you know, lost uh, brothers and stuff. So this really affected me. It also caused me to sort of tune out to what I was being taught in school because I developed a sort of a fatalistic attitude about I'm, I'm going to pursue what I enjoy. I'm not going to be an accountant or a, a lawyer or anything like that. I'm going to have a good time. So as an act of rebellion, I was immediately involved. And I'm like, I'm going to sing in a rock band. I was, uh, I was in sports and things like that. But I was, I wanted to be creative. I wanted, I resonated with the people that were creating the most noise against the culture that was being forced upon us. Um, uh, I was uh, seeing, I remember protests when I was living in San Francisco and Haight-Ashbury, you know, with the hippies and everything. We'll be nice when we take over the world. I'm like, yeah, I want to be with you guys. You know, I want to climb on the 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 backs of the uh, motorcycles, the Harleys and Sausalito with the Hells Angels and scare my parents. I was like, yeah, I because I ain't going down the road. You guys are going down because I'm going to die that road. You're gravitating toward the counterculture. I was totally entranced with it and i mean look what i do now i'm a, I'm a you know i'm a barefoot hippie massage therapist in hollywood plays the harp you know <laughs> i mean it was pretty firmly stamped on my 18th birthday i remember i was living in williamsville new york and i remember going oh gosh i really got to do it now i got to go and i got to sign up for the draft you know and i was I was in a rock band there that was pretty popular and I had really long hair and uh, I was kind of not living at home and we didn't have the internet in those days. And I go down to, to the, to the uh, post office where we had to sign for the draft and lean. So I'm like, go, okay, I'm here. Here's my, I'm here to sign by 18. I go, you know, Chris, you don't have to do it anymore. Like, what are you talking about? No, come on. And they go, no, no, no. It stopped. They stopped, they stopped the draft like six months ago. I don't know if anyone told you. I go, you're kidding me. Don't mess with my head now. I mean, I'm just here to do my thing. I was so brainwashed and thinking that's what I had to do uh, and not be branded a coward or go to Canada or something. They had to pull a plaque off of the wall, point it in front of me and say, look, they changed the rule. It's an, it's an all-volunteer army now. You don't have to do this. They're like literally hitting me on the head. I've been so brainwashed for 12 years and I remember – having this this amazing sensation in my head of like you I, I can't believe i'm free i don't have to face those fears and i think i went like to a donut shop made like 13 donuts or something i don't know why i did that but it was just like i had to do something compulsive um carpe diem but uh you know and still was you know gravitating towards uh i had a sense of duty of what i had to do for my country because we still came from that generation of like you know john wayne and you know and and patriots and things like that and fight the bad guys we didn't realize at the time uh, the incredible lies that were told to us to get us into the vietnam war and keep us in the vietnam war we were still pretty brainwashed and the thing that patriotism meant you went and fought for your country when they sent you to go kill people you know and uh we, we've learned of course since that uh that was a, a huge mess but it affected 
a lot of us from that generation, I've talked to guys my age who started and they said, yeah, first grade. I mean, it's like, you know, we saw this war the whole time. And, and so it, it was kind of a subtle act of rebellion for me that I was going to do uh, things that were not expected and creative. And it also really appealed to me, you know, making music and, and being around those type of creative people really appealed to me. Yeah. And you're getting probably way too soon developmentally, you're getting a sense of the fragility of life and the, and the senselessness of the loss of life that the government will just throw their citizens into and, and uh, obviously has a profound impact on the way that you look at the world and you look at your trajectory in life. I think it affected a whole generation of us and uh, some of us more than others. And I know that that myself, that I think it stunted a lot of what have been the development that I would have had under normal circumstances to, uh, you know, maybe apply myself more in school. Although I was a fine student, I just, I don't think I ever did homework one time. Um, you know, I just kind of learned everything on the fly and, and, uh, and, uh, you know, I was like, I knew I was going to do something different. I mean, in my senior year of high school, I skipped so much of my senior year, they weren't going to let me graduate. And I'm like, come on, you know, I still passed the tests. Yeah. You know. As you may have noticed, there are great resources and advice mentioned in all our episodes. And for many of them, we actually collect all of these resources for you in one easy place. Our newsletter. You can go to dreampathpod.com newsletter to join. It's not fancy. Just an email about each week's episode, featured artists, and resources to help you on your journey. Thanks. And now back to the interview. So how did you make your way to the Academy of Dramatic Arts? I was in Houston at the time. I'd left uh, Rail and Company, and I went down and joined my family who had relocated in Houston. And I remember opening a newspaper, and I saw some audition for the American Academy of Dramatic Arts. And I was like, at the time, I was like driving a van for Pennzoil, you know, at the record center uh, down in uh, downtown Houston. Like the, they order some files, and I go to this big warehouse and bring them files. It really it was a job with no future, but it's kind of an interim thing. And and I remember saying to my parents, I go, you know, what if, what if I audition for this school? And they're like, oh, we'd love for you to. We'll pay for it and everything. I go, okay, I'm going to audition. <laughs> so I went and auditioned at, um, for a gentleman named Bryn Morgan, who was the um, uh, assistant director of the school. And uh, I got accepted because you have to audition and be accepted for the school. And every year you have to be accepted back. So the numbers would go down. We started with a large class. And in those days, now it's a two-year school. In those days, it was a three-year school. So I wound up, you know, having three wonderful years there. We had a blast. And uh, I uh, got my associate's degree in acting out there. And, and then I wound up... Um, leaving and going back to Houston, uh, family reasons. My, my parents had split up and, and I wanted to be part of the family business. And I wound up having, uh, it was really auspicious. I wound up having incredible opportunities in Houston. I got to be, uh, got to do some of the greatest roles ever written for an actor at one of the largest, uh, theaters in Houston, which is the fourth largest, uh, city in the country, uh, a theater called Stages Theater. Oh, so you're doing stage work. Yeah. Stage work. Yeah, yeah. I got great. I mean, I got to do, uh, I got to do uh, Bent, uh, one of the first productions in America of Bent. I, I played the lead in that, and uh, I wound up doing um, a Night of the Iguana, a great role. I wound up doing the theatrical world premiere of Carnal Knowledge 
originally was uh, Jules Pfeiffer had written it as a play and artistic director, Ted Swinley, who uh, was the uh, heart and soul of stages theater contacted me and goes, I would like to do this as a play. And Jules goes, how did you know it was originally written as a play? So we did that and I wound up, um, I also did K2. They were another really great play and hair. We did, I played burger and hair, a big long playing revival of hair. That was a blast. Nice. I got to be the the hippie king, go figure. Um, <laughs> but Carnal Knowledge uh, was done at a time when the National Theater Critics Convention was in Houston. This is uh, 1988. And I was also still um, at Hit Video USA. And so I was on TV during the day and at night, I was acting with this great theater company. But Carnal Knowledge was a big deal. Uh, the National Theater Critics Convention was in town. Jules Pfeiffer was involved with our production. And... Uh, he uh, told his agent, Robbie Lance, who's this legendary agent of Hollywood. I mean, when he passed away, they showed his picture in the Academy Awards as one of the people who passed, handled everybody, you know, Gable and, you know, Liz Taylor, every, everybody. And he flew down from New York and saw me in the play and immediately signed me up and sent me up. I, d I wound up auditioning for a film called Valmont uh, for the lead in the film. And, and they had me in full costume doing a, a, a screen test with Annette Benning, who was cast in the role. And it came down to me and like Colin Firth. And they're like, oh, this is a $40 million film and he's un unknown. And so I didn't get that part. And, uh, but I, w I wound up coming out here uh, with carnal knowledge because the National Theater Critics Convention had given me national press coverage on this play. And so they brought me back out here to the West Coast. At the time, uh, Nick's dad was pretty sick. So I got to be with him towards the end of his life. And it was late 80s. Yeah. Yeah. yeah the 1988. And so I came out here and was going to be involved in the production of the Pasadena Playhouse. But again, they said, and they said, you, uh, you're an unknown. So we're going to have this TV actor, Gregory Harrison, do it. And you can be his understudy. And I really had to swallow that one because that was a, a really great uh, opportunity for me. And I had the right as an equity production to have the right of first refusal on any subsequent productions. But my agents, Robbie Lance and everyone said, don't worry, there'll be other opportunities. And uh, then John passed away and the bottom kind of fell out and a lot of hearts were broken. And uh, I know Nick was having a hard time dealing with some of that. And I had the opportunity to... Uh, start doing massage professionally, which I'd always kind of done on the, on my own and never thinking to take a penny for it because I thought it was some sort of unique gift that was given to me. I did not want to corrupt it with money. And I had a friend of mine, Paul Weber, who wound up being the head of casting at uh, um, Sony, say, listen, you do jobs you hate and you get paid for them. Let people pay you for something you're really good at. And a little light went off in my head and I never looked back. And uh, I've been doing it for over 30 years now tens of thousands of massages the stories i can't tell you <laughs> uh working i've worked on everyone in this town for years and and just had the best time and still going strong and it's apparently what i'm supposed to be doing so but like you said it, it is it is also a creative thing i think of it as an art form you know i certainly approach it sort of as an art form you know uh, a body work healing work is an energetic exchange of energy just as creating any type of art is and i take my my work along those lines. I take it very seriously. I've gotten pretty good at it. I think by the time I'm 75, I'll be really good at it because it's one of those things, you, the more you do it, you just keep ascending with knowledge and wisdom. And uh, I want to be one of those guys when I'm 75, if I'm blessed to live that long, where you walk into a room and just kind of go with my hand and fix you. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I've got kind of got that as my goal. Now, this, is, this may seem like a weird question, but 
do you think that there are parallels between the presence that's required with acting and the presence that's required with massage? Meaning there's, when you're acting, you are reacting to the person that you're acting with in the scene. And it seems like with massage, you would be reacting to how they are responding to your touch. So there, when you're talking about an exchange of energy, there's, there seems to be an exchange of energy with actors. There seems to be an exchange of energy with massage. Does that make sense? Well, I think what you're talking about, basically, if you look at the crux of it, is communication. Yeah. Right? When I work on people, there's a strange uh, transference of energy that happens that I don't think I have anything to do with. I mean, I'm, I'm the last person that you would necessarily think of as, uh, you know, being uh, blessed with this gift of touch and massage and healing. Uh, uh, somehow I have it, but I'm not precious about it. I, I always tell people if Robert Mitchum was a massage therapist, he'd be me, you know, because I don't walk around. I'll give you an example. One time I had a massage done say, by some guy. So you got to get worked on with this guy. So I went and met this guy to get worked on. He met me in the street and he turned around. His t-shirt had like angel wings on it. You know, I'm not that guy, you know, <laughs> I, I kind of go in and do my thing. And, and yet when no matter what's going on in my life, if I put my hands on someone, something happens. There's something that I don't take credit for. And I've gone on to learn there's maybe, I think they say 11 to 12 percent of the population that's born with sort of intrinsic gift of touch you know, empathetic touch, you will call, I don't know, maybe a lot of people don't know they have it. They might be bagging groceries at Whole Foods or, you know, changing the oil at Jiffy Lube. Who knows? I happen to be fortunate enough that I found a place that, that it was discovered within me. And the, this, this town has been my laboratory for 30 years. And I've been able to take that and develop it at a very high level by doing it thousands and thousands of times. And that is one of the fun things about it. You, when I remember like 30 years ago, I remember going to one of my teachers and I was a real hot shot massage therapist out here. I was working on all the big film sets and, you know, doors would open for me and I'm working on Playboy Playmates of the Year. And I'm like, going, are you kidding? I'm getting paid for this. And I was like, <laughs> I went to one of my, uh, my, my teachers said, you know, I think I'm peaking too soon. You know, I'm so good right now. And I'm like, no, 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 you're, you're good. Your body works hot, but you're like here now. And you're going to go here for a while. And then after a while, there's going to, you're going to hit a wall and that wall is going to come down and then you're going to be here. And then you're going to hit a wall again. It's like you keep ascending. And I look back now and he is absolutely right. Like anything you do or master thousands and thousands of times, you develop, a, you, you start to develop an, a knowledge about it. You will not have unless you do it thousands and thousands of times. So I've been blessed. I've been able to take this and run with it. But going back to your original question, yes, I think there is, there, there is some of that in terms of listening and being listening to uh, with, with, when you're acting, you're listening to what the person's saying. You're listening to the body language. Uh, really good actors are good listeners and they react to what's saying instead of just reciting their lines. When you're uh, uh, doing energetic healing work, that person is on the table and you're listening to rhythms that are unseen. Generally, you know, I have communication with a client, um, usually beforehand. Sometimes they'll talk during a session. Um, and, but generally I can, I can see someone at this point, I can see someone walk into a room and I can tell you their body history and things that have happened to them in their life because every second of your life is imprinted in your body. So as far as the transference of, uh, of communication and energy with people, 
when you when you're doing that there is there is some of that it's just it's i think it goes down to just being really aware good actors are really aware they're aware of the moment they are in that space holding that space for that character they're playing they're aware of the feelings that character has and how they're connecting and communicating those feelings i think the same thing you know, to a degree when you're working with someone who uh, and i work with some people that are you know, have gone through some really tough things and maybe like getting ready to change worlds. I worked on a guy last Thursday whose wife passed away early in the week. And Thursday around noon, they cremated her and he attended the cremation as part of a, he's part of a, the uh, Native American community. And, and, and I worked on him after that. And, uh, we had a really heavy session and I realized not only the people that, are obviously sick, hurt, or injured, but the caretakers have great needs as well. Mm. And I really started to formulate the, this idea of, uh, you know, kind of focusing some part of my work on that, uh, helping out people who are caretakers uh, as well, because it's, it, uh, I think of this gentleman I worked on last week, he's been caring for his wife, who is a fairly well known actress too, by the way. Uh, he's been caring for her for like 12 years. And she'd been really sick. And I remember at one point in the session, I looked at him, I said, I said, Walter, I said, your girl's free now. She's dancing. And he goes, yeah, how'd you know? She was a dancer before she was an actress. I go, she's dancing now. She's free. And so are you. And I contact him today. I said, how you doing? He goes, you know, I'm still thinking about that session we had. I really saw her. I saw her being embraced by the tribal elders. And he named the tribal elders. And, and, and he goes, and it just was so good for me to be able to see that and see that and 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 go on i think i think it's going to be a good year and he's someone who's done the sundance before i mean i work him he's got the scars on his chest from you know hanging from antlers and uh, with the lakota tribe and he's got some sons that are doing the sundance this year because i think i'm going to go to the sundance this year one of my sons is dancing i go yeah it's good so you know it's good to see everyone has needs and a lot of times we're told not to uh, pay attention to our needs that it's some sort of a, a you know we're being selfish or anything like that and there are so many unselfish people out there and everyone has a need to be balanced recalibrated uh, when i talk to clients for the first time i always bring up the notion that you know i say see those harps right there i said those harps have to be kept in tune and the reason they have to be kept in tune if they're not the soundboard could warp the string pins could get rusty or crickety. Um, the harp is not healthy unless the actual instrument, which the which is built to be calibrated, is to be in tune. I go, you're a much more complex instrument than that harp. And I go, what we have to do is get you in tune. You mm -hmm. know, and I said, I always tell them, I'm not the healer in this room, you are. I said, I'm just, I'm really good at helping you connect to that. I'm like, I'm, I'm a really good facilitator helping you empower yourself with healing yourself. Because a lot of people in my profession go on patting on themselves on the back. Oh, I did this, I helped out, I'm like that. It's all ego. But the truth is, if you can empower someone to know that they don't have to be in a submissive position to let someone heal them, if they can walk out of there going, I can take a breath and be present and heal myself, that is the greatest gift you can give them. And that is what I am very fortunate to be a part of in people's lives. Intimately involved, very intimately involved with people on, on, on levels that the, uh, 
that a lot of people don't have access to. I see some people sometimes at their worst situations, um, uh, sometimes uh, struggling with all a whole bunch of different things. And my training was originally in body mind work, where it wasn't just a massage. We were trained at, uh, in it's a great school I went to called the Radical Therapy Center, run by a, a, a genius body worker named Christian Smith. And for two years, we studied, uh, you know, we studied uh, the Rolfing series, Feldenkrais, Traeger work, massage. I mean, we, t but we also studied psychology uh, and psychiatry uh, polemically from Freud on up to um, Rogers. And we studied uh, Marxist doctrine because we looked at how a lot of people, their work conditions in late capitalism are causing them to have uh, manifest symptomatic problems in their body. You know, repetitive motion syndrome stuff, uh, depression from being in a work situation that steals their soul. And so there was a movement back in the early 90s, uh, the body-mind movement, where we would whereas uh, as a massage therapist isn't trained to have a psychotherapeutic dialogue with you, and a psychiatrist or psychologist cannot legally touch you, we were crossing those boundaries with uh, groundbreaking work where we were having the dialogue with the clients while we're doing rolfing strokes on them and doing Reiki and breathing exercises to get them to exercise um, energy that was trapped in their bodies, in their cells, and really feel. And it was really powerful stuff. And it was great training, gave me a great foundation for what I do. Now, now nowadays, people kind of just come. I work on people for two, two and a half hours a session, bliss them out, and that's great. And I don't do as much of the body work, mind, uh, mind work now because it doesn't seem to be in vogue, but it's still there. And I have clients that I work with. I worked with a guy today, had some serious issues. You know, we talk, we have a dialogue, and, and I'm getting him to experience his body. And it's it's really fun. It's a very creative way to work with people to help them uh, heal themselves because having that uh, that that gift to heal yourself what is there's a saying that i i have with, with without health wisdom is useless strength cannot be manifested uh, strength cannot be exerted art cannot be manifested wealth is useless and reason is powerless you know so what i've learned especially as i had a health crisis myself a couple of years ago man it really dials you in when that happens. The most important thing you have is your health. And so I'm fortunate to be able to be in a position to help people care for themselves. And as an uber nurturer myself, it is exactly where I'm supposed to be. Hmm. The songs I write also come from that same sort of place. I don't write songs that are throwaway lyrically. Um, the songs I write have I'm not saying like I'm, I'm deigned with like, you know, great messaging and things like that, but they're all from the heart. You know, they got blood and memories on them. And fortunately, I've had some roles too with acting where I've been able to really forge deep and have a, a cathartic communal catharsis with people either in, in the audience in the stage or, um, people who might see the stuff that we're doing. It is a great honor to be able to touch people's hearts. Yeah. And I get to touch their their hearts, their bodies, minds, and spirits in my work. And uh, every day I wake up excited that I get to do that. And after hearing that soliloquy about massage and your, your I mean, how eloquent that was, I think I understand why Woody Harrelson is <laughs> endorsing you on your website as you know his, his favorite masseuse. Well, I've worked on Woodrow for 30 years. Yeah. <laughs> uh, hundreds of times. And um, 
And it's interesting because I would never exploit the people that I work on, but I, I, I was fortunate. He's, he's like, yeah, let me, let me give you, let me do this. I'm like, are you sure? I'm like, yeah. So I put up my website. I was pretty proud, you know, because, uh, um, I have a great relationship with him and his wife and his family and, and have worked on them hundreds of times. And for him to give me those sort of, uh, accolades and approval meant a lot to me. Yeah. I'm actually seeing him, uh, Thursday night. He's flying in from London. Oh. You know, we have an ongoing relationship and it's, it's wonderful. He is one of the greatest human beings I've ever known. He's, he's about as real and authentic as it gets. He seems that way. Has not changed. He's gracious, kind, loving, super smart. Mm-hmm. Really smart. And does he come here or you, you go to him? No, I go to, to go to their house. He yeah. still has a house up here in Beverly Hills. He's had since the Cheers days. You know, we've done, we've had, uh, we had some good times up there. Yeah. Yeah. Any other celebrity endorsements that you can mention that uh, would not violate confidences or privileges? Well, there's Nick. You know, yeah. Nick gives me a nice, some, and he's fun to work on. I worked on him just yesterday. You know, and Nick is like, six seven he just got back from shooting a movie with nicholas cage out in japan and he was pretty beat up from it but nick nick uh nick is in amazing shape right now he just turned 60 and he's gone on this workout regimen I, I i he's always been a great athlete but he's in in ridiculous shape right now he's doing boxing now isn't he no no oh, he's oh. doing um um we have box though Mm-hmm. We've boxed, we box. Uh, we we used to box a lot. We were real into. It. He's doing uh, some pretty heavy duty uh, body work training things, uh, dietary stuff. Uh, he's got himself slim, and I, I told him too. I said it's really good you're getting these roles. He's doing another film in Hungary with a a friend of ours, Paul Johansson's directing this movie about an exorcism, and Dick is going to be in that. I said it's so great that you're in such good shape because now you captured for posterity you know how good a shape you're in <laughs> and uh he's 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 quite something uh a lot of people there are people i've worked on that are no longer with us that i could probably mention out of out of my heart robin williams was a client of mine and uh i loved him and i remember i was painting my bedroom when i got a call my sister told me that he had died and i was crushed because he and i were, were going to go on a bike ride together and it messed me up i, I did not see that coming uh, one of the sweetest people I've ever I've ever had on my table. I I've worked on everyone in this town, and I'm not also being around the Cassavetes family. I've been around people, celebrities, and I'm not too wowed. But when I'd go into a room and there was Robin Williams on my table, I'm like, it's Robin Williams on my table. <laughs> I'm like, this is really cool. Yeah, you know, I get to be alone for two hours with Robin Williams. He was special. Yeah, he was special. You know, and he was special. Yeah, that's. I mean, I used to work on Anne Bancroft, you know, I'd be mm-hmm. working on, I'm working on Mrs. Robinson, you know, right. <laughs> you know uh, they're no longer with us. Uh, and there's a whole bunch of other people. Again, you know, I, 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 I appreciate you respect the confidentiality, but uh, uh, a whole bunch of other people that I work on and, and have access to and, and, and I'm so grateful. And, and so many people who don't live in Hollywood or Los Angeles have this, this notion. Sometimes you see in there, oh, those Hollywood people, blah, blah, blah. They're the greatest people in the world. You hear about maybe the three or 4% that are total a-holes. Yeah. But most of the people out here are hardworking. They're generous. They're intelligent. They're compassionate. They're aware. They're great. I mean, people who work in the movie business work their asses off. Well, and they're also human beings. Yeah. You know, I think people forget that, and I forget that because I'm starstruck, but they have needs, they have vulnerabilities, they have a need for privacy, and 
Yeah, big time, you know? <laughs> and so um, I think if people just recognize that they're, they're human beings like all of us that have their own needs, and just because they're stars doesn't mean they owe you anything. My, you know? my, and, and my experience, uh, and I'm so impressed because I couldn't imagine what it's like not to be able to go out in public, you know, unless you have a disguise on. And, 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 and some of these, these people and friends of mine are, I mean, well, you, you, I've been with Woody in public and just swarmed with, and I'm like, uh, do you ever get used to this? He goes, nah. <laughs> You know, but he likes it and he handles yeah. it well. But a lot of people, uh, you know, they're a little more vulnerable about it because it, it, I couldn't, I couldn't do it myself. I mean, I think there's, for me, I think the, the great, uh, gift these days is to be invisible, you know, because, uh, it's a different world, you know. Uh, I, I think about the old days in the forties. I looked at a picture recently of, uh, uh, oh, aerial shot of this area in Burbank Studios. And I saw my house here from like 1940. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, I was like looking at, wow, this place and all the stories people have gone in and out. And it's a different town now, yeah. you know, and, and, and a lot of people, um, you know, they do need to, to protect their psyches and their souls. Uh, but again, most of the people I've worked on, uh, I, I'd say everyone I've worked on, cause I won't work on anyone unless I love them. I mean, I think love is, is the, is the X factor in healing. If I can't find some way to connect my heart and love energy with someone on the table, we're not going to get a whole lot done. Right. And so I'm very fortunate I can pick and choose who I work on. I won't work on anyone that I, I don't feel is, is beneficial for me to be in a room breathing the same air with. Uh, but the people I've worked on again in, in this town, I, I'm amazed at the incredible generosity and kindness and, and awareness of not just themselves, but socially aware of things and trying to make a difference. I mean, Woody has done things behind the scenes to make this a better world that he would never talk about and I wouldn't want to expose for them, but I, I know what he does and you know people like that more power to him you know we need we need it it'd be a great time if we got to a place in 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 the, the world collectively where healers started to lead you know not just people know how to make money but healers you know healers that are aware of it's all of us or none and we can you know a, a rising tide lifts all boats i don't think we're there yet but when i see the work that some of my friends are doing big work i'm like going it gives me hope Makes me feel good. Makes me feel good to, to, uh, not be, there's a lot you can look around and be pessimistic about. And there's a, a lot that can, can drag you under, but there are people out there still making an effort and you see it in the arts a lot. Um, you hear it in music. Um, you see, uh, you know, you see people, uh, religious institutions, you know, for a, a lot of things that they're damned for. There are people doing good work trying to help people out there. And it's a time that we need it. I mean, you've been in Los Angeles here a couple of days. I don't know if you noticed our homeless situation is ridiculous. Yeah. There are people right down the street here by the smokehouse restaurant and the bridge that goes over the the river there there's a whole city of people living under there right now yeah. like rodents yeah. and um we drive you drive to hollywood and vine and you look at uh, the underpass and there's i mean i've lived here most of my life i've never seen it like that before so obviously something is not right there's an imbalance that has to be corrected and more power to the people who have the power to raise awareness and try to change the situation if we can because if we don't you know we're, we're in trouble it's a it's a big ugly scar and where we are in terms of our evolution as a people but i have hope that uh i just have a feeling that there's going to be a good turn 
turnaround of things. And I, I, I want to reach out to everyone that has it in their heart to feel that they're alone and powerless and can't do anything. Look around you. There are people that are thinking just like you. And, and uh, heal yourself, heal others, look out, reach out, be kind, just be kind to people. You know, um, uh, it's so easy to be reactive and to escalate tension within a situation, but you can also diffuse it by being kind to people, mm. you know, and realize that uh, there are people with needs out there and we have to take care of ourselves. Yes, we can take care of our brothers and our sisters. And I think it's high time that we do that. Mm. And a lot of people I know in this town are making an effort and they're using their celebrity or their, their fame or fortune for good. And they're not asking for pats on the backs. They see a need. Yeah. And ki kindness can be a religion. Well, I mean, it should be, you it, know? Yeah. And yeah. It, it, it should be everybody's, it should be the, the thing we can all agree on. What was Clarence Darrow's famous saying? He was, you know, a noted atheist in the Scopes Monkey trial. But he said, my church is the world and my religion is to do good. Nice. Yeah. Well, one word that comes to mind when I look at your massage studio and I hear you talk about what you provide to your clients is sanctuary. Yeah. I, I think that you are on to something over the last 30 years in terms of what you provide to your clients. And you have a sensibility, obviously, as, as an actor yourself and a musician and a creative, so you can connect with them, I think, on that level. But as a healer, it sounds like you really know how to provide that sanctuary, even when you go to their house. I bring so much stuff. I mean, I don't know any massage therapist that brings as much stuff as me. Yeah. I bring so much stuff. Unfortunately, I'm big and strong and can carry it, but I bring a lot. Yeah. You know, it's kind of ridiculous, but I try to create a sanctuary wherever I go. And thank you for noticing that because I think we all need sanctuary. And I think we need sanctuary. We also need rituals, mm -hmm. you know, and the rituals are a way of getting us in tune. Sanctuary is a way of finding peace in order so our soul can quiet down and we can, we can listen to what our needs are and be aware of what's going on around us. But right now, we have a generation of people being bombarded by information, being bombarded by technology, and they're a we need to balance some of that out with being able to hear the silence and see how it informs us. I, I've never talked to Woody, um, obviously, but my perception of his choice to live in Maui and especially in, on the area of the island that he lives, which is in Paya, is that that is a sanctuary. Oh, it is. And I, I remember I was, I was with my wife last year, I think, and Lucas Nelson was playing at Charlie's. In, which is Willie Nelson's son. Willie Nelson owns Charlie's and Paya. And I, I'm in line like two hours before the show starts because you can't get tickets to this show. It's like only people who are friends of Willie and Lucas are going to get in. So I'm in line and then I see, I see Woody go in. I see Shep Gordon go in, who's a, a you know big time music manager. And they don't let hardly anybody in so that it's just a really comfortable crowd in there. And the rule is if you do get in, there's no approaching, there's no pictures, no secret pictures of anybody. This is a sanctuary. And and so I'm starting to appreciate that people like Woody, you know, they they absolutely deserve to have that sanctuary that uh, Charlie's provides, that you provide. And I'm I'm glad you're doing it. Thank you. I'm yeah. glad I'm glad it found me. I don't know what I would do otherwise. Yeah, you know, I sometimes think about it. You know, I'm going to turn 63 in March, and I'm sometimes go. You know, I mean, I, I have no guarantees. People, phone may not ring tomorrow, and I'm like, I don't have 
any contract or allegiance with people or any guarantee that I'm ever going to be able to have people on my table again. But every day I do. And I also use the power of intention in, in a way that I, I literally used to go, uh, my ex-girlfriend was a body worker as well. And she goes, how do you get so many clients? I go, I literally just go like this, like Samantha from Bewitch and twitch my nose and make the phone ring. And I can do it. And then if I want some time off, I'll like twitch it. Don't call me. I need a day off. And so I just always know they're going to be there. And uh, every week I've, you know, I, I don't know where it happens. They just, they, they're just there. You know, my client base grows and, and, and I'm able to have more and more people, you know, show up and I'm able to perpetuate this, this life that I've created that I never outlined, had no blueprint for. I have no idea how it happened. Just fell into it and it has swept me away and, uh, it keeps going and hopefully it will continue because I'm having a ball. So how do you look at acting and music now that you have this long time gig as a massage therapist and a healer, uh, which pays the bills, but how, how do you look at acting in terms of your, your dreams and goals and aspirations? And same thing with music. Is it, is it more of a, a hobby? Is it, are you deeply passionate about it? Are you looking for bigger and better roles? And tell us what your, your aspirations are. Sure. Um, music is, is really big. Uh, I mean, if I, if I could choose to do anything in this world and make a living doing it, be a musician. I mean, that's what makes me the most happy. Uh, the best moments of my entire life, uh, and I say this uh, without question, are when Rick Knotts and I have rented a house in Arrowhead, Santa Barbara, Joshua Tree, Laconner up in the Puget Sound, wherever, and we've locked ourselves in there. And we just look at each other and start creating music. That is the best I've ever felt. That is a religious experience. We have recorded so many songs we haven't released yet uh, that we are, and then we're on the process of doing. We have one album out now, and it was, it was very great, eclectic mix of match of eclectic electric rock and roll and harp music. But we've gotten better as songwriters, and our best stuff is about to come out. And that brings me the most joy. There's no money in music anymore. So you do it for the love of it. Mm. There's music, there's money in performing, but he lives up there and I live down here and we're both old guys, you know? I mean, we're, we're off the radar, but we're creating music that is undeniably good. And I think I'm a pretty good judge of what that is. And the music we're creating right now is really, really good. And Rick, Rick is a genius. He's one of the greatest guitar players I've ever seen. Why he's not a household name, I don't know. I think it's because I left the band when I was 19 years old. <laughs> because I, I just know that if yeah. we'd stayed together, you and I'd be sitting poolside right now, right. you know? Yeah. Um, but uh, the, 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 the love affair we have for making music together has continued all these years. And the cumulative effect is there's a backlog of songs that we are in post-production on right now. As far as acting goes, that's more of a hobby. That's just fun. I was with Nick today. He's got a couple movies he's getting ready to do in 2020. And, uh, you know, I don't ask him to be a part of him. But you know what? He always finds something for me to do. And it's fun. We have a blast. It, he was kind of like his dad and that he has his crew of family that he likes to be involved with things and have the shared experience. He's an incredibly generous person. Maybe the most generous person I've ever known in my whole life. Mm. Um 
and so, yeah, that's kind of, we're kind of looking at 2020. It's going to be a good year. You know, he's had uh, several years where he's not been able to get a movie off the ground, even though he's come real close. He'd be in, he was in pre-production in New Orleans for a film uh, for months and it got shut down right before we started shooting it. You know, there's always money. There's this and that. And he's indefatigable though. He never, he just moves on to the next thing. And he sent me a script last night that I read that was wonderful. It was a blast. And we talked about it today. And he's got this other movie, his boxing movie is about ready to do. And one of his uh, passion projects, uh, a film called God is a Bullet, that he's been trying to get made for 15 years. He's determined to make it next year. And uh, it's, 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 I, I would definitely see that as being something really fun, this dark masterpiece. So, I mean, it gives opportunities. It gives you something to live for. It's fun. I don't live or die by it. Um, like I said, people see me in his things. They give me something else. Uh, this fade out Ray, I've got a juicy cherry roll and that's my Bill Murray role. And I have, I just, I have a ball with it, but I'm part of a great ensemble of people in that. And if doors open, fine. If not, it's not the end of the world for me. I do know this, that at my age, and I was talking to Nick about this today too, because he just acted for the first time in a long time, just a couple weeks ago in this film in Japan. And I go, you know, buddy, this is what we set out to do when we were kids. But I think you should do more acting because first of all, nobody looks like him. He's very unique. He's striking tall. Mm -hmm. He's got some great tattoos and he's just, and I said that what we know now, that what we can convey now in terms of our acting, you know, I think, I think you should do more of that. And I think he thinks so too. And, uh, um, it's fun to do when you're young and, you know, you get all the Mr. Guy roles and this, uh, you know, the weird things that you don't really care about, but you're like the handsome guy or whatever. But now we're these old crusty characters and man, that's where some really fun stuff happens. You know, yeah, it's a blast. Well, you know, I'll never vanity for, aside. I'll never forget Nick's uh, role as Dietrich uh, Hassler in Face Off, and he was reunited with Nick Cage in this film yeah. uh, in Japan recently, and uh, they had a ball working together. And I think that Nick wants to work with him in one of his upcoming projects. But yeah, he was. Yeah, I remember when he had that shaved head as Dietrich Hassler, and and uh, what a fun movie that was. You know, yeah, it was. Seems like yesterday, time goes by. So iconic. Fast. I mean, and, and Nick is iconic. He in, is. In this town. He's. Yeah. You know. Uh, when we were young, he used to say, like, you know, no matter, I'll never be the man my dad was. I mean, but, but bad enough, you have one f uh, parent that's famous. Both his parents are iconic and revered. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Now, you're you're <laughs> it, baby. You are you are the real deal. He is. He's brilliant. He's a great storyteller. He's the funniest guy I've ever known. Uh, super intelligent. Um, he had a, uh, like, he's got like a genius level thing. He can read people better than anyone I know and a huge heart, mm. uh, uh, but a character. I mean, he's profane and, and, you know, he, he, he knows how to, you know, take the other end of an argument, but man, you got him for a friend, you know, you've got, you've got a mountain because he's as big as he is, his heart is just as big. But I also think as a storyteller, because I've read all the scripts he's written and uh, I, I was telling him today, I'm just amazed you know how to do that. You're just, the, the way you tell stories, you're so good at it. And the thing is, I think he's getting better. And I, we talked about the difficulties, because he's had some health issues too uh, last year. And I had my near extinction event two years ago, uh, almost to the day. And we both came back from that with kind of a renewed sense of purpose. Uh, nothing dies you in like them telling you you might not make it through the night. You mm -hmm. go, okay, you know, if, if I get if I get to live through this, and you know, you realize what's important, and you eliminate all the the BS. Um, I have created a life of voluntary simplicity. 
you know, I'm not rich as you can see. I live in a humble place and I'm not wealthy by any, by any stretch of the imagination, but I've, I've always, uh, prioritized freedom. You know, I've never had a boss telling me what to do. I've never, I can sleep in, I can take time off, do whatever I want. And so I've sacrificed on those material needs in order to, to have this stuff. And now, uh, this freedom and I have to create the life I have. And, uh, Nick and I were talking today about how, we really feel we really feel like something special is going to happen in 2020 because we both had you know we, we came back from some tough things physically and and uh he's had some you know difficult times getting his projects off the ground but we're rounding third and heading towards home you know what i mean yeah and uh we don't know how many uh tomorrows we have so we're making the best of today and if we're rounding third and coming towards home we're diving in cleats first, maybe nice. look out because we're making a splash when we hit home. Nice. You know. All right. So if listeners want to book a massage with you, where do they go? Well, my website is pretty easy. Uh, you can go to www.lamassagepro.com. I lucked out. I got that name was available and I'm like, yeah, that's me. <laughs> <laughs> or they can go by my name, chriskincade.com. Just have to spell it right. C-H-R-I-S. K-I-N-K-A-D-E. Okay. You know. And what about your music? Where music is, uh, uh, our website is www.elswaves, E-L-S-E-W-A-V-E-S.com. Uh, and uh, our music is available streaming, iTunes, um, uh, you know, Amazon, everything that streams, you know, even the places that rip us off, the Russian sites that put it up there for free. You know, again, you don't make any money, you know, with your music these days, but you share the love. And if you get lucky, you know, I, uh, we've got a couple songs coming up that would be really great for like Toyota, Toyota commercial. <laughs> I've got one sort of country Western thing. I wrote like, Oh my God, if I could get someone in country to record this, then we, you know, it's in publishing that you make the money. You yeah. know, we don't write things for that, but cause some stuff you write is pretty eclectic, but the best stuff we've had is coming out and it'll just make us feel good to get it out, you know, nice. to share it. And, and finally, uh, listeners, if you want to see Chris's body of, uh, of work on IMDb, go to IMDb, do the search term Chris Kincaid, and you can see his impressive list of movies and television uh, that spans decades. I also have a YouTube uh, channel that's got all kinds of crazy clips, even the hit video stuff, stuff from the plays I've been in. Um, you know, there's a, there's a bunch of embarrassing things up there. You know, if you just write my name and write and check me out on YouTube and you see my page, I, th I think my page for some reason uh, is called Sabbath Head. <laughs> I don't know why. What's the name? I can remember this. Right. But if you just Chris Kincaid and YouTube, you can see a bunch of clips and, and there's stuff about my massage career in there as well. And, you know, it's just a not, it'll be a nice epitaph for when I'm no longer here, you know, a virtual epitaph of right. things that uh, this guy was here and he did these things and for what it's worth, but hopefully uh, someone will find something interesting there. Yeah. And, and I just, I just watched the other night, the, the brand new YouTube video on flatulence in the massage session. Oh. <laughs> so uh, that passing gas in the massage uh, session and just a little, uh, basically a PSA on that, right? Well, more, more, more a, a teachable moment because yeah. I mean, it's an occupational hazard that we have to deal with. We're, I think we're one of the few professions where you're probably going to get farted on, you know, it just goes <laughs> with the case. But the real crux of that was a, a massage school teacher, uh, years ago, I took a class in massage, uh, some Thai massage and, and during the lunch break, everyone went out to the Chinese buffet and I stood and took a nap, which I usually did. And they came back and she's telling people after the break, we're going to do that afternoon. She just lets one rip. 
And it, it's a, it's a hard one. It's the one of those beef with broccoli rips and people, you know, her little, her little minions are, are feigning, feigning and stuff like that. She goes, this is a teachable moment. We're human. You're going to fart. And if you fart during a massage, it's okay. And they're like writing it down. It's okay. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Let me tell you, you know, cause I'm a massage teacher too. I said, you may be given the best massage you've ever given your whole life. And if you happen to break wind during it, that's all they're going to remember. So write this down. Don't do that. That's pretty much <laughs> the point of that. I didn't want massage therapists giving themselves the green light right. to get human in the table. Right. You still have to have some uh, decorum. Chris, thanks so much for talking to me Thank today. you. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, it was. I really appreciate you coming out. Hey, thank you for listening. And I hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Dream Path Podcast. If so, I have a favor to ask. Can you go to your favorite podcast service and give me a rating and review? Your feedback is what keeps this podcast going. I appreciate your time. And as always, go find your dream path.